I'm going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I am writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us, along with all the wisdom and understanding. The word of the Lord. Just as the uh, grades 5, 6, 7 are dismissed to their classroom, just a little bit of a public service announcement. You may have noticed that they're cleaning the streets on Town Centre Boulevard. Um, there's a seasonal snow ban in effect, so if by chance you park down one of the bus routes, uh, they are towing and moving vehicles so that the plows can get through there and do that. So just take note of maybe where you parked. If you're in the lot, you're cool. Or at the schools, you're fine. Um, but just take note of that maybe. Thanks, Pastor Norb. Good morning, everybody. Thanks, John. So good to have you here. It's been, it has been probably 10 years uh, since we have uh, had John and uh, over at the Holy Trinity Chinese Anglican Church. I remember that in the good days that we had there. So thank you, John. And uh, John is representing Compassion Canada. You'll hear more about that uh, a little bit later on in the service. Uh, we have some sermon notes this morning. They're tucked inside your Sunday news. If you would like to uh, grab them, they might just help keep us on track a little bit better today. And as mentioned, we're starting the book of Ephesians uh, this morning. I, I know that God is always with us as we uh, gather together as his people to worship him. Um, there are times, as you probably know, when uh, his presence is more apparent uh, it's sometimes that when I'm preaching, his presence is more apparent to me than uh, at other times. And I usually become sensitive to that through the unnatural silence. And the room goes extremely silent. The coughing from all the colds seems to cease. And the chairs are quiet because no one is shuffling. And suddenly you notice it. I'm sure you have so many times. There is a physical quiet in the room and he is among us and suddenly the focus is clear and sharp and captivating and when I'm preaching I notice a calmness in my heart a tranquility in my heart and and it's as if God is bringing his smile it's bringing his favor to us and and I know that his presence can never be programmed the unnatural silence uh, comes not through us but from God alone 
when we are bringing him worship from our hearts and the word of God is being opened to us and it is truly the word of God. David Hume, the uh, Scottish philosopher and skeptic, was once challenged as he was going to see uh, and hear George Whitfield speak back in the mid-1700s. And someone said to David Hume, I thought you did not believe in the gospel. And Hume replied, he said, I don't, but he does, referring to George Whitfield. And there's something about him that I just have to be there. Somehow the sense of God in the midst of meeting together was, was captivating, even for a skeptical philosopher. The awareness that God is among us. And thank you, John, for reminding us of, of that this morning. is so encouraging and so powerful. Well, we come to a book of the Bible that makes such an impression on us that we want to learn from it and we want to grow in its wisdom. And there is a sense of God's presence as you read it. And you take it into your heart. It's not an easy book. Uh, but if you start reading it perhaps every day. And you read it for the next two to three months. Just every day. What, I'm, what I've been doing for the last month is just taking a section of four, five, six verses. And reading it and trying to digest it. And then I will journal on it. And I will ask the Lord, what do you want to say to me through these verses? And just do that every day and every day and every day. And it's amazing how you begin to understand a little more of what Paul is saying to us and what God wants to say to us personally. So first of all, the letter is a prison epistle called Ephesians. Uh, it's a prison epistle. It's one of four prison epistles along with Philemon, Colossians, and Philippians. So we're going to do a study of the book of Ephesians and we're going to do it under the theme called Deeper. And Paul builds a deep theological foundation for the church in Ephesus. Such a remarkable book. I'm kind of nervous to, to speak uh, week by week on the book of Ephesians because I guess I'm aware of the depth of this book. Uh, it's going to take us deeper. Uh, but at the same time, I'm motivated and I'm challenged, but a bit intimidated by the book as well. Some of the things that we will talk about are, are kind of hard to wrap our minds around. Uh, Paul spends time going deeper, and he wants us to come with him, and he, he puts down some deep foundations. Uh, we might ask the question, well, why do you put such deep foundations under these giant skyscrapers? And you know there are more and more skyscrapers coming to our city. Why don't they just start building the first story. I mean, just scrape the topsoil off, just lay a footing on top of the ground and begin uh, building an apartment complex five, feet high, uh, five stories high or ten stories high. Well, you say you can build an apartment like that, five stories high, that it has no foundation, but you can be sure, I'm not going to live in it. I'm not going to live in, in a ten-story high, uh, high rise that, that doesn't have a foundation because it's a disaster waiting to happen. Well, we're going to see the deep, deep foundation that Paul builds. And we're going to look at the foundation. And I know I won't be able to explain it completely to your satisfaction. So I'll just present it. And you and God can argue it through. <laughs> you can debate with him. Some of you will probably say, well, I can't get it. And I say, welcome to the club. Neither do I. There are a lot of things in life that I don't understand. 
I don't understand. When I hit my email at send, and somehow it goes flying through cyberspace, and it lands in your inbox, and you read exactly what I had on my mind and I put onto paper, onto my computer, I don't know how that, that, how that works. Uh, I don't know how airplanes work. I mean, I'm getting more and more relaxed when I ride in an airplane. I mean, I used to do my own inspection of the airplane. Are the wings both there? Do the turbine engines look like they're just hanging out or they look like they're solidly in place? Do the oxygen masks work? And I used to pray a lot when I get it, would get in the airplane that this aircraft would remain airborne until it got to its destination. I find that I'm not even as diligent in prayer anymore about that. I, I fall asleep easily. I'm not going to the window just helping the pilot get this thing up in the air. And the noise, you know that noise that comes from the washroom when the toilet flushes? That doesn't alarm me anymore. It's like, what was that? It's okay. I guess I, I know I'll never be able to comprehend all there is to know about the airplane. It works, and it's good enough for me. I just hope the pilot has a good night's sleep before, that he's not on anything stronger than coffee. And if that's so, I can sleep on the airplane. So there are things in Ephesians that we're going to come across that people have been trying to figure out for a long, long time. And, and still, we can't really grasp it. I don't mean to imply that we shouldn't study it. We should indeed. But even so, we will come to the conclusion that I can't adequately explain all of this. We will live in that tension. We will live in that tension. So it's always valuable to start with context. So if you get a letter from somebody, the letter makes a whole lot more sense when you know the one who wrote the letter. I don't get many handwritten letters these days. I don't know if you do. I expect that none of us get very many handwritten letters. Actually, it's, it's a novelty. If you get one, it's like, wow, who did that? Who wrote all of that out? But the very first thing you do if you do get one is you go to the very end of the letter and you, you want to find out who signed their name to it. Because once you have the play, uh, the, their name, then you kind of see, oh, I get the context of this immediately. I, I know more about this situation. So context is really important. So this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I'm writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. So secondly, Paul is the writer of the letter. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Uh, you don't have to go to the end of the letter, in this case, to find out who wrote this theological masterpiece. Every word he writes is very personal because he identifies with it deeply. This transformational book has all the trappings of a man who was so incredibly changed. It takes a changed life to write a book like this. Uh, he took the off-ramp from his old life, and he zoomed right up onto God's new freeway for, for his life. And his book carries the theological implications that came with taking the off-ramp. He was born Saul. Uh, the name later changed to Paul. His parents were strict Pharisees living in Tarsus, 
which would be Turkey in our time. He was sent to Jerusalem from his boyhood home. He attended, he was probably only 15 or 16 or in that uh, age range when he was sent to, to Jerusalem to study. He attended seminary in Jerusalem. He sat at the feet of the most famous rabbi in his day, a man by the name of Gamaliel. And at seminary, uh, Paul or Saul learned to exegete the scriptures, meaning that he was proficient at, at dissecting the passages and learning all of the interpretations. Uh, he was no doubt an excellent debater. He learned to reason like a lawyer. He knew how to make his case, often I would sh I'm sure leaving his opponents gasping for air. And the way he would word things and make a point was impressive. He had a number one education. He clearly had a formidable and potent mind, bright, insightful. And he would one day occupy a seat on the Sanhedrin or the Supreme Court. Uh, he was a teacher in the synagogues. The question is asked, was he married? It's a good question. There aren't any references to his wife in, in the letter to the Ephesians or in that matter for any other letters that he wrote. But most people think he probably got married because Jews uh, rarely remained celibate. And parenthood was important to the people of that day. So marriage was also seen as crucial to serving on the Supreme Court. But we were never told about his wife anywhere in the scriptures. So we just have to say we don't know. But we're inclined to think he probably was. He felt he was serving God by persecuting this young upstart uh, group called the people of the way. Christians. People, he thought, who were distorting the truth about God. But his off-ramp moment came while he was on a quest to kill off some more Christians. Uh, he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. And the voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what to do. And therein begins the journey of Saul. His name was changed to Paul. He felt so unworthy. Uh, he couldn't believe that he had missed the mark so badly. Here he was studying about God and not really knowing who God was. He didn't know the plan of God. He didn't know the heart of God. He was doing a religious thing and he was so zealous. He'd been to seminary. He knew the scriptures. He had prestige. He was a rising star in Judaism. He had a measure of fame. But he didn't know God. And it's the story of many who want to serve God, have a heart for making a difference in the world. Some men and women enter in, into ministry because of their humanitarian hearts. Some enter the pastoral ministry only to discover somewhere along the way that they've never ever really encountered Jesus Christ, never really known him. I had the joy of ministering alongside of a, such a man uh, some years ago, many years ago, who pastored for probably three or four decades and then in his senior years, he took the off-ramp and he met Jesus Christ. And I remember having the privilege of thanking him at a gathering for his ministry when he retired. 
He was probably well up into his 70s. And I always remember feeling that my thanks to this gentleman seemed so very inadequate for this servant of God who by his admission came to find Christ in a personal and relational way in the last years of his life. The last, say, 15 years of his life were so different than the first 30. He now preached out of a transformed heart, and his congregation knew it. They knew something had happened in his life. We all knew it. He was different. There was a difference in his life. There was a power in his preaching. And you know, you can come to church for years. Maybe somehow have the sense that it's all about coming to church. Maybe you have the sense that it's about being a good person or supporting good causes. And then one day, you see the off-ramp. And you start making a choice that, that you never expected you would ever make. And your life has changed forever. Because you meet Jesus. And when you meet Jesus, just things begin to change. Now, God wanted to take this same guy, Saul, and do an absolute remake in his life and in his heart, and fit him for service uh, in, a, in a new harness called the Christian faith. He was becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. And I'm captivated how Paul writes it. He says, this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. So look how he signs it. Isn't, isn't it interesting that he doesn't choose to use words that are quite egocentric. This letter is from Paul, the brilliant scholar who studied under Gamaliel. This letter is one from one deserving your attention and, and your respect and your admiration. None of that. It's just Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, chosen by the will of God. You don't hear what Paul, hear what Paul is saying. He, he's saying, I don't have any authority to say that I rose up uh, in the Christian faith. I earned my stripes, and I'm, I'm writing to you out of authority of all the things that I, I know and have experienced. No, he said, the reason I'm writing to you is simply because Jesus intercepted my life. And for whatever reason, he chose me to be his servant, to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's the strangest thing. Chosen by the will of God. And you can know that he must have said that often in his community of friends. I'm the least. I mean, I can hardly believe that this has happened. That he chose me. Look at my life. Look at, look at what all, all that I've done. This is preposterous. So he gives thanks to God, credit to God, for his sovereignty in his life. And, and just a great place for me to say this morning, wherever God has placed us, humbly, under the sovereign hand of God to give thanks. Do you have a great voice to sing? Who gave it to you? Are you a natural with your hands? Just can fix anything? Where did that come from? You really like math? You really like math? That must be from God. Are you, are you able to lead and bring organization out of chaos? Who gave you that ability? Was your life going nowhere fast and you met the Savior and your life was transformed? Who gets the credit for that? Well, Paul knew the scorecard on his own life. 
He was very aware that God was, had been up to something in his life. Even before he knew it. Yes, long before he ever knew about it, God was at work. And it's interesting to me that the word Saul actually means large or tall. So Saul takes the name after the tallest and vainest of the Benjaminites, King Saul. But after he came to know Christ, he takes the name Paul. If you look it up, it means small. He went from tall to small. He had been humbled after he met Jesus. He is, he is humble and open and receptive. All the key ingredients to being used of God. So the writer is Paul. Thirdly, Ephesus is the destination. Paul begins by saying, I'm writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. Now, the letter is penned by Paul when he was a prisoner in Rome. And as I said, Ephesians is referred to as one of the prison epistles. They, they are letters written to the churches while being held captive. And Paul never counted himself as a victim. There is never a sense of this is unfair, I'm in prison, I should be with my friends in Ephesus. It was like it is what it is and God is always sovereign and he knows what he's doing. Now, not all the translations include the words in Ephesus. Uh, there, this may well have been what is called a cyclical letter or an open letter to all of the churches uh, in the region of Asia Minor. Perhaps it was to be read in the other churches as well, churches like Laodicea and Colossae, uh, that were, churches were in that same region. But it's felt that its first and primary audience was the influential church in Ephesus. But it may well have been circulated to the other churches. And as, he, as I said, he wrote three other letters from uh, Rome, the, the prison epistles, Philemon, Colossians, and Philippians. Uh, he was in prison, but better understood, he was under house arrest. So it wasn't like he was behind bars. There was a Roman guard with him at all times. And the great thing about this, you can read about it, I'm not, I think it's, I'm not sure, in the book of Acts, I believe, uh, the, the, that Paul would become friends with the guards and, uh, and, and impact the guards' lives. And many of them would come to faith in Christ, so much so that it was impacting the whole praetorium guard, which was the elite guards of the Roman penal system. And so, one by one, as Paul interacted with them, they came to faith in Christ, and it was having quite, a, quite an explosion uh, in the prison system. Which, which is really a cause to say you could almost always share Christ somehow, somewhere, in words or in action. You could always flourish in your heart, even when you feel the limitations and the prison's cages are, are moving in on you. Uh, that God gives us hope and he gives us opportunity and he gives us grace. And so Paul was all about encouraging this church at Ephesus, even though he was under Roman guard. Now, Ephesus was quite a place in its day. I know some of you have been there. Some of you have visited this. Uh, this. It's in ruins today, but the ruins are still impressive. It was a city of marble. Look at this picture the, this is the 
the Colosseum. This is the this is a, a Colosseum that held over 25,000 people, larger than the new Rogers uh, uh, place. And the seats were all made out of marble. Look at that. That's incredible. And there they would sit and they would watch the games or they would watch a play or whatever it was. Marvelous marble. And Ephesus was a seaport. It was very influential in its day, uh, politically, economically, Seaports brought people in from all over the world. So this was a city with a, a diverse population, uh, not unlike uh, what we are experiencing in southwest Edmonton. Uh, Ef Ephesus is known for a great temple which was built and dedicated to the fertility goddess Artemis, also known as Diana. And so these are the ruins of that great temple. And uh, the next picture, I think, Steve, is a picture of uh, what I call the former Wonder Woman this is the, the goddess Diana that was worshipped in, in that temple. It was a huge, huge cult. There were women and men, uh, prostitutes, priests and priestesses. This was a, the, the structure was stunning. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. But it was a very dark place. And Ephesus was a very dark place. Spiritual darkness penetrated the landscape. And many businesses made their profits from the temple of Artemis. So it was into Ephesus that Paul and his co-workers walked, uh, and they began to plant a church. Not an easy spot to plant a church, I'm sure. But I don't think Paul ever mused, saying, Ah, oh, maybe it won't work here. Uh, maybe this is too difficult a place to plant a witness for Jesus Christ. He knew that God loved every person in the world, whether from Jerusalem or Antioch or Cyprus or Corinth or Ephesus. Just like he does today. God wants his work and his word to be established everywhere in the world. And we all have a part to play. Our daughter uh, Janelle and John uh, have just come back from Bolivia. Attending the wedding of uh, one of the missionaries we support, Ken Switzer. I think many of you have met Ken. And Ken has been here in this church on numerous occasions. Ken takes the, the boys uh, off the street in Santa Cruz. Boys, perhaps their parents uh, have uh, died or been murdered. And uh, Ken takes, puts his arms around these and brings them into a house and, and mentors them and cares for them as they get their education and uh, get into uh, um, professional practices. Many of them have grown up to be accountants and lawyers and doctors, and, uh, and uh, it's, it's a, just a wonderful ministry. And we're glad that we as a church have, have uh, been able to help Ken do kingdom work in Bolivia. Uh, so Ken and his wife were just married here a couple of weeks ago. But we have a role in Bolivia. We have a role in Bolivia. And I just, uh, I'm so grateful for the, for the support that we're able to provide Ken with. And as John and Janelle were there, they said it's a very important work. This is an awesome thing that's happening in Santa Cruz. The church is being built in Bolivia. And God has called us to church plant, as you know, in Windermere, right beside us. Because our neighbors need to hear the message of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter where we're called to reach into our communities. And so Paul walked into Ephesus. He went to the Jewish synagogue. He started there. 
He left Priscilla and Aquila there, and they laid the foundational blocks for a new church. And then Paul comes back to Ephesus a short time later, and he spends considerable time getting this church established and strong in the faith. I mean, you have to just go to Acts chapter 18, Acts chapter 19, just, just write it down and sometime just go back this week and kind of read the story of the formation of the church in Ephesus. Uh, Paul incurred the wrath of Demetrius uh, in Ephesus, a silversmith, because people were coming to Christ and no longer going to Demetrius to buy their idols. Uh, because of, of the impact of the Christian faith in Ephesus, Demetrius was losing business. Those are the implications of a society that follows Christ. And so Paul stirred up a riot through his preaching. The name of Jesus was powerful back then as it is today. I mean, you stand for Jesus in our day and you can expect a lot of pushback. But in Ephesus, Paul had an amazing ministry. God blessed that ministry. And many, many people came to Christ. And the church grew in leaps and bounds as he mentored them and he taught them. And the fruit was abundant. Look what he says. I'm writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. If you're reading from the New International Translation, it says, uh, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. To the saints in Ephesus. I get scared away by that word because that is not what we would call ourselves. The saints. But the word actually just means chosen or set apart. It doesn't mean perfect. You can do no wrong. It doesn't mean some plastic ceramic statue in a cathedral. It simply means set apart. And, and Paul saw these people who had come to faith in Christ and he recognized the transformation happening in their lives and they were now different from their culture. They were set apart. And of course, it blessed his heart so much. Wow, that it might be said of us that we are set apart from our culture, that we know how to effectively live in this world, but we are yet set apart from our culture. The NIV puts it this way, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. I just want you to take note of those last three words, in Christ Jesus. Now, this is an expression that we're going to hear time after time in the book of Ephesians. I didn't count them, but I think it's well up into the 20s where we hear this expression, expression, in Christ Jesus. Did you realize that at the moment you gave your life to Jesus Christ, the moment you came to faith in Jesus Christ, did you know that you were placed into Christ? You were not only placed into the body of Christ, the church, but you were placed into Christ himself. Say, I hear you, but I don't get it. What does that really mean? I mean, I still am who I am. I'm standing here. I'm, I'm right here. I'm still working. I'm still, I'm still who I am, but I am now in Christ. 
We're talking about your position, your position. And it's hard because we have to think abstractly. In God's eyes, when you said yes to Christ, he took you into his beloved son. So that whatever God sees about the son, he sees about you. This is your position in Christ. You are in Christ. I mean, isn't that just absolutely awesome? Whatever God sees about his son, Jesus, he also sees about you because you are in Christ. The first president of Dallas Seminary, Dr. Schaefer, took issue with an old hymn called Nearer to God. And he didn't feel somehow that the words were quite right, that, that it expressed the truth quite correctly. So he rewrote these words. I'm not sure if it's on, yeah. Nearer to God, nearer to God, I cannot be, for in the person of Christ, I am as near as he. For in the person of Christ, I am as near as he. That is so awesome. You couldn't be nearer to God than when you are in Christ. In the Son, you are as close to God's heart as Jesus is. Now, that's one of those things that boggles my mind, as talking about before. It's just hard to get that. You at one time had no future, but now you have a future because your future is in him. You have been raised to new life with him. You've been seated with the heavenlies with him. You have an ultimate security in him in which you confidently know that you will be blessed forever and ever and ever, eternity, future, because you are in him. Christ has power over the enemy, but now because you are in him, you have power over the enemy. He was victorious in his life on this earth, and because you are in him, you are in victorious in your time on this earth. In Christ. This is called positional truth. We are in Christ, and Paul's going to refer to this over and over again, so I'm just kind of warming us up to the idea. You're going to hear it over and over again in this amazing letter that we are in Christ. Finally, the greeting, grace and peace. May God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. It's a beautiful greeting. Uh, may God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. What a privilege to be filled with the grace of God. Grace is God's free, undeserved favor and mercy. For no merit of our own, God just pours out his grace on us, undeserved favor, because he really loves us. God reaches down to us. He sees us in our need. He knows our need. And he just pours out his unmerited favor on us. We don't deserve it. We'll never be able to pay for it. Uh, it doesn't come in a little stream either. It comes in great abundance. Later you're going to hear Paul saying 
He just lavishes his grace upon us. So it comes in great torrents. It's not just a little dribble, but he lavishes his grace upon us. And the other word that's always just what we need is the word peace. Peace is what comes when God reconciles us to himself. I was thinking just the other day, what were my initial feelings when I first came to faith in Jesus Christ? And I think that the strongest quality I can identify is peace. A strong sense of peace. A wonderful sense of peace. And when our hearts are right with God, there's peace. There's a beautiful peace. And you may not realize how awesome that is until you don't have peace. And we do, when you don't have peace in your life, uh, it, it's, it's what you want the most. Oh, that I could be at peace with, with God, with my family, with my friends, whatever. When our hearts are right with God, there is peace. So chapter 1 is all about the grace of God. And then you move to chapter 2, and it's all about the peace of God. But the grace comes first, and then it's followed by the peace of God. Uh, and, it, and, and it comes to our lives through Jesus Christ, uh, who brings his shalom, his peace, his reconciliation, his wholeness. So a huge Christian greeting, grace and peace to you, uh, and, and, I, and friends, I just want you to know that this is God's very heart for you. Grace. That he's poured out his grace, meaning his unmerited favor. There isn't a thing you can do to earn it. If you, if you try, try to start working for it and saying, well, I'll, I'll just be the best person I can to earn that grace, and so I will be able to make a transaction with God on that, in that way, forget it. It's, it's a gift of God. It's something you just open your heart to and you say, Lord, I receive you. I receive your grace. I receive it as a gift. It'll change your life. So he wants you to say yes to his grace and just allow it to flow into your life. He gives you a will. You can say yes, you can say no, but he wants you to say yes and when you say yes, then you'll come to know his peace. A strong and reliable peace that will keep you through the hills and the valleys of life. God's peace. So this morning, uh, there could be no better time than to invite Jesus to enter your life and to become the one who fills you with his grace. And you watch the peace immediately follow it. As I close in prayer, uh, you could just open your heart to him this morning and say, Jesus, I want you to be the one who controls my life. Just come with your grace and fill my life. Forgive my sin. Come into my life. I hand you the controls of my life. Help me onto this new road. I'm going to start today. So would you stand with me as we pray? That's the prayer of your heart, uh, that you just uh, ask Jesus Christ to come in and be part of your life this morning. Our gracious Father, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. We're aware, Father, that you are the initiator of all things. Before the earth existed, before before we were in our womb, in the womb, you knew us and you chose us and you loved us. 
It's beyond our ability to understand how you predestined us at the same time you allowed us to exercise our free will. I don't quite get that, Lord. But thank you that we don't have to have all the answers, but we're privileged to know Jesus Christ, and by your grace, we are in Christ. So remind us today that we're deeply, deeply loved by Jesus, and in him we are forgiven, given peace, fitted for our ministry in this world. We're grateful for, for you, Lord Jesus. We receive you, Lord. If there are those here this morning that have, haven't taken the off-ramp, I pray, Lord Jesus, that the signs would be so clear in their mind and their heart even now. They would say, yes, I'm going to take the off-ramp. I'm going to give my life to Jesus Christ. So bless them, Lord, as they pray to have you come into their life and to bring your grace and your peace. In Jesus' name.